0: 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 is our text. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold... I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not abana and Far, far the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing? Would you not have done it? How much more then? When he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Reading of God's holy word. Be seated, please, and let's pray together. Oh Lord, your word is truth. We believe it to be true. We believe it to be absolute truth. We believe it to be the means by which you sanctify your people, the means by which you instruct them and build them up in godliness. And so, as you have given your word for these purposes, and you've supplied great and precious promises to us concerning your word, we pray for the ministry of of the word in the midst of your people, both for its preaching and, and for its hearing, that the Spirit would attend with great power. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 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 2 Kings chapter 5 is situated in a segment of Elisha's ministry spanning chapters 4 through 6, which shows that Jehovah's power is triumphant over debt, the widow's oil, chapter 4 verses 1 to 7, over death, the Shunammites' woman's son, chapter 4, verses 8 to 37, over drought, the poisonous stew, chapter 4, verses 38 to 44, over disease, Naaman's leprosy here in chapter 5, and over difficulty, the floating axe head in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It stands on its own as a sustained argument, it's to be compared to the section uh, in Mark's gospel, in chapter, chapter 4, verses 35 through chapter 5, verses 43, where there's a, a string of Christ's miracles recorded there. Some of these uh, Elisha accounts are, are quite brief, for example, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the widow's oil, just seven verses. Uh, the, the floating axe head here in chapter six, again, seven verses. But others are extended narratives, like uh, the case of Naaman's healing here in 2 Kings chapter five. As the narrative begins here in verse one, It's obvious that Naaman has a lot going for him. Position. He commanded a large army. Esteem. He was highly respected in the sight of his master, the king of Aram. Success. He was a valiant warrior and had carried out heroic to gain victory for his people. But this first verse also tells us that Naaman had a significant deficiency. Uh, He was a leper. Now, scholars have questioned the severity of uh, Naaman's ailment in in biblical times. It wasn't always the life-threatening, limb-destroying disease that Leprosy has become today known as Hansen's disease, that the term leprosy can describe a variety of skin conditions as evident from its description in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. And so some commentators suggest that Naaman was suffering from a lesser form of skin disease that would have been considered leprosy, But whatever the precise condition, it was severe enough, was causing him enough difficulty that a seasoned warrior made a long journey to seek a cure, taking a vast fortune with him for that purpose. Our passage shows us Jehovah's power is triumphant over disease. We'll be working our way through the narrative here in chapter 5 by underscoring various theological keynotes, uh, both today and and next Lord's Day, God willing. In verses 1 through 14, we see that In the first place, God's sovereignty is comprehensive. Secondly, God's servant is faithless. And thirdly, God's ways are offensive. God's sovereignty is comprehensive. God's king is faithless. And God's ways are offensive. God's sovereignty is comprehensive, our text teaches us. After reading about Naaman's greatness in the majority of this first verse, his leprosy strikes a startling note at its conclusion. But the most shocking aspect of the text is the reason that this man was highly regarded In his master's sight, the Lord had given victory to Aram, by him. By him, Jehovah had given victory to Aram, to Syria. Some of your translations read. Here we have an instance of God's sovereignty over what we would call the big things. Jehovah is Israel's God, and yet He directs what happens to and in Aram. It's Jehovah who grants success to the Aramean military. The text implies that Jehovah controls Syrian politics and foreign affairs. This is the God of Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Jehovah is both God of the church and Lord of the world. Jehovah draws near to his people, but that doesn't mean He allows the rest of the world to go unchecked. Verse 2 is the other side of the coin. Jehovah is sovereign not only over the big things, the big events in the world, but also the small circumstances in one single young life. The report is heartrending. Now, the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. The narrator draws a contrast between Naaman, the great man, in verse 1, and this little girl in verse 2. Naaman was a great man before his master. This little girl was serving before the wife of Naaman. And the whole text hangs on this young girl. We don't even know her name. And yet she's at the crux of what's going on in this portion of God's revelation. She went about her daily tasks, uh, tasks. one day. She, uh, she mentioned to her mistress uh, how burdened she was over her, her master's physical condition. Uh, there was a prophet in Samaria who had the power to, to heal him, she says. Uh, in verse 3, Naaman, who is obviously uh, in a desperate physical condition, at this point, finds hope in this little girl's words, goes to his master, tells her what she said, and that puts the whole thing in, into motion. One mention by a little girl of a prophet in Samaria who has the power to heal. If we ponder verse 2 for a moment, the personal tragedy is palpable. Perhaps the little girl's parents were killed in the Aramean raid, but in any event, she was carried off by the raiders. Never again to return home, never again to see her loved ones, whatever dreams she had among her family, among her a village, uh, were shattered. And she would live the rest of her life in servitude in a foreign country. And yet, in God's providence, this account depends on this little girl and her tragic servitude. Without her, Naaman would have never been healed. Apparently, she was from a godly home, from a remnant family. Family in northern Israel because she knew Elisha and she had confidence that God's power operated through this prophet. Jehovah brought her from Samaria to Aram under these tragic circumstances to bring about his purpose. In this man named Naaman, God's people are often brought into God's kingdom at great cost to other people. Do you see how in two verses in the text, we are taught that both international affairs... World affairs and personal dilemmas are under Jehovah's control. Both the big picture and the minor details of our lives belong to him. There's no conflict between the Lord's transcendence and the Lord's imminence. His eyes keep watch on the nations, Psalm 66, verse 7, and the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, he watches all of his paths. Proverbs 5 21. God's sovereignty is comprehensive. Secondly, God's king is faithless. King of Aram sent Naaman off with enormous. Amounts of, of uh, with this letter uh, and uh, and Naaman goes off with enormous amounts of, of silver and gold. King of Israel gets the letter. He's devastated. He's alarmed. Concluding first that the the Aramean king has. Has, it was placing unrealistic expectations of divinity upon him. Am I God that I have the power to heal this man? And then that Aram, uh, that Aram was, was trying to pick a fight with him. There's a clear contrast between the believing girl of verses 2 and 3 and Israel's frightened king of verse 7. What the king should have done, had he been a godly king, was to display the same kind of faith uh, that the little girl had. The king doesn't even seek out the prophet. Elisha has to come to him. He has to take the initiative. He hears that the king's uh, torn his clothes. He hears something is amiss in the palace. And so he sends uh, a word to the king why have you torn your clothes? Let this man come out to me, and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. So the king, then, doesn't know the power of God. He doesn't understand the power of God. Theoretically, he does. He protests, verse 7, Am I God to kill and to make alive? Apparently, he... Knew that God could do such things, but for him it was only a formula. The king is the epitome of unbelieving, unseeking, apostate Israel. Remember, the king was responsible for, uh, for setting the example. Uh, the the king was to have a copy of the law of God in his possession. He was to set the example for for the, the for God's people uh, in keeping the, God's law, in walking in righteousness. But he lives his life without recourse to God. It's it's obvious. Uh, we don't know who this king is. It, it's likely. Uh, Jehoram, we don't know, he's not named, but uh, Jehoram here is mentioned, the last king that's mentioned in uh, 2 Kings 3 and and, and verse 1. Uh, But he's living a life apart from God, doesn't know God. He's a king of a people uh, who are part of a covenant nation, and he should therefore be seeking God in, in such dilemmas. But he, like the nation itself, has the name of Israel, but not the faith of true Israel. That's the problem with Israel's king and with Israel. You can be part of or over the people of the covenant and not have the faith of the covenant. Isn't this king a warning? to you and to me you may be numbered among God's outward people and yet live a life without God your name may be on a church roll and yet you don't seek for him you don't long for him you don't thirst for him you don't cast your anxieties upon him you may be a long standing member in a Reformed Presbyterian Church or another faithful church of Jesus Christ, but have no faith in him whatsoever. We may profess God and yet live life without God. God's sovereignty is comprehensive. God's king is faithless. Third, God's ways are offensive God's ways are offensive God's ways humble our pride elisha begins his interaction with naaman in a manner that was guaranteed to offend him naaman pulls up in in front of Elijah's house with his Uh, in his chariot and his horses, and uh, Elisha doesn't even come out the door. Naaman shows up at his his doorstep, and he doesn't come out to meet him or or greet him. He sends a messenger to give him instructions as to how he can uh, be clean. Didn't even grant him the dignity of meeting him personally. Naaman was livid, to put it mildly, and his response in verse 11 is is emphatic. Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. Surely he will come out to me, Nathan thought to himself. Nathan is a great man. He's somebody, and he knows it, and he expects others to recognize uh, that he's a great man. But all he gets is this minimal communication from Elisha's lowly messenger. Elisha treats Naaman like a leper who needs to be healed. God's ways humble our pride. God's ways reverse our expectations. Verse 11 reveals Nathan's expectation for uh, this personal meeting with Elisha, I thought he'll surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord is God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He'd already... He'd already had it... He hadn't figured out what, what Elisha should do. He'd already written the script as to how God should heal him. He expected Israel's God and prophet to act like uh, the professed healers that he had known back at home. So he brought plenty of money, apparently what was required uh, to pay off uh, the healers back in uh, in Syria. And he expected the prophet to perform magic with uh, the wave of his hand, heal his leprosy. And we can sometimes, in our expectations, be uh, not so different from Naaman. How often we already have our idea of how God ought to operate, and when he doesn't meet our expectations, we become disappointed with him. J.B. Phillips charges in his classic work, Your God is too small, that at such times... We are worshiping a false God that he calls the perennial grievance. Here people allege that uh, the God that they trusted, uh, the God that they served faithfully, let them down. I did what he asked me to do, they think. I served him faithfully, uh, and he let me down. He didn't answer my prayers. Uh, he brought this uh, this disaster or these troubling circumstances into my life that I don't think I deserved. Such people usually set their set up in their minds what what they think God ought or ought not to do, and uh, when he apparently fails, there is this sense of grievance, the idol of perennial grievance. Perhaps you've run across people like this. I have. I've spoken to people like this. I've spoke, I, I remember very vividly speaking to a young man once who, who thought that that God had wronged him, that he had done what God had required of him, that he had done everything that God asked him to do, and yet God did thus and thus to him, and he was grieved. He was disappointed that God had let him down. Elisha, on the other hand, wanted to show how different he was from any professed wonder workers that Naaman may have known. And so the healing took place at the Jordan, far away from Samaria where the prophet was, so that God would be recognized as having done uh, this work in faithfulness to his word and not in uh, any way determined by the presence or the personality of the prophet. And that's what we've noticed, haven't we, as we've looked at Elisha's miracles Uh, Even as we looked at Elijah's miracles, it's not the prophet who uh, performs these miracles. It's God who uses the agency of the prophet and does these wondrous things. God's ways humble our pride. They reverse our expectations. And God's ways annihilate our broad-mindedness. Elisha's instructions were dogmatic. Go and wash in the Jordan, not once or twice or three times, four, five, six, but seven times, and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Why must it be this way and no other? Naaman wanted to know. Why can't there be uh, several viable approaches to this healing? Why couldn't he wash in the rivers of Damascus that were far better than the the rivers of uh, Israel? Couldn't I wash in the the rivers back home and uh, be clean? So he went away uh, again enraged. Verse 12, why was he so furious? He was incensed at the dogmatism of Jehovah's word through Elijah, Elisha, rather. And if it wouldn't have been for the the reasoning of his unnamed servants here uh, in verse 13, he would have gone back to Syria still carrying with him the, the leprosy, still carrying with him this, uh, this disease, whatever it was that he was afflicted with. Naaman's complaints are the very objections that people raise about the exclusive claims of the gospel. He didn't like the humiliation Of the gospel. In verses 9 through 11. He didn't like the simplicity of the gospel. Wash and be clean. He didn't like the narrowness of the gospel. Wash in the waters of Israel. And you will be clean. Wash in the Jordan. And be cured of Leprosy, what a preposterous idea. Naaman couldn't think of anything more ridiculous. To the unbelieving mind, maybe one thing is more ridiculous. The idea that putting your, your trust and faith in a man executed on a cross 2,000 years ago, can give you a renewed life now? Forgiveness of sin, resurrection from the dead, and eternal life. That's utterly preposterous to the believing mind, the unbelieving mind. And this describes, well, the, the unbelieving spiritual climate in which the Apostle Paul ministered. The Jews objected to the simplicity of the gospel and demanded powerful signs. The Greeks objected to the narrowness of the gospel and looked for salvation in wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. But listen to the apostles' reasoned response. In verses 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. To the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called. Both Jews and Gentiles. Christ the power of God. And the wisdom of God. The spiritual climate in which we minister is no different. And we must therefore be prepared in our preaching, in our witnessing, in our apologetics to present reasoned arguments against unbelieving objections to gospel simplicity and gospel narrowness. Unashamedly proclaiming that Jehovah, the God of Elisha, has the right to make such exclusive claims upon his creatures. And never giving an inch to those who argue otherwise. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you this evening as we did this morning. For our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. For the simplicity of that that, that gospel. Uh, The narrowness of the gospel. The clarity of the gospel. Many things are hard uh, to understand in your word, O Lord, but you've made the gospel so clear. uh, That our... Objections are are washed away. We thank you for your sovereignty over all things, the big events and the little circumstances of our lives. And again, even as we uh, prayed uh, this morning, we asked that you would help us. Uh, to understand your this sovereignty, to call to mind this sovereignty when uh, the difficulties of life encroach upon us, and that we would look to Christ, the one who reigns and rules. We'll look to you, O Jehovah, our Lord and our God, the same God who ruled and reigned over the big things and the small things in the time of Elisha. Would you rule and reign? In our lives, we pray, O Lord, that we would not be proud, that your ways would not be offensive to us. And if they are, if we find them, if we come to a point in our lives that we do find them offensive, that you would humble us, humble us under your word, humble us under your power and claim your exclusive rights over our souls as our Lord and our King, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.